The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This is not a moment I've been looking forward to. I hear they drummed you out of the continuum. I like to think of it as a significant career change. Just one of the boys, eh? One of the boys with an IQ of 2005. The captain and many of the crew are not yet convinced he is truly human. Really? Seems human enough to me. This is a dangerous creature. You have no idea. Why Picard would make her a member of the crew and not me? It must be terribly frightening for you to be totally defenseless after all of those centuries of being omnipotent. I'm warning you, I still have friends in high places. Frightening one race after the other, teasing them like frightened animals, and you enjoying every moment of your victim's fears. From now on, I'll do missionary work, okay? That would be a most noble cause, Q. Could learn a lot from this one. Sure, the robot who teaches the course in humanities. I am an android, not a robot. I beg your pardon. I'd enjoy that, and you better get used to it. What? Begging. You're a pitiful excuse for a human. The only way you're going to survive is on the charity of others. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 30th, 2013. I'm Robert Vaughn, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number to call to join me today as I continue on the journey into selfishness, a topic my co-host, Bob Metz, selfishly started two shows ago and added to with last week's show, where he discussed selfishness with the aid of audio bites from an interview Dr. Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute had on an online program called Liquid Lunch in Toronto. Today, I'll cover selfishness, lying, capitalism, socialism, and the morality using excerpts from Dr. Brooks' talk, Bob and I, and about 175 other people, attended in Toronto on May 6th. The talk was sponsored by the Toronto Objectivist Committee and the Freedom Party of Ontario. Now, the YouTube video of Dr. Brooks' presentation can be found on Just Rate's website at justratemedia.org. On our site, you can also find a 20-minute exclusive interview I made with Dr. Brooke on the campus of the University of uh, Toronto. Jerome Brooke is presenting Ayn Rand's message that capitalism is the most moral political system because it is based on rational self-interest. And while everyone benefits from free trade and capitalism, that's not what makes it moral. In fact, if one were to enter into an agreement or trade with the primary purpose of helping the other guy, that would actually be immoral. It would suppose that you're sacrificing yourself to that other person. And sacrifice in an objectivist ethics is immoral. Morality in objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, is based on the pursuit of happiness of the individual. The morality prevalent in today's society, of course, especially that in the West, is the morality of sacrifice. The morality that holds sacrifice to others as the good and selfish pursuit 
as evil. This presents a dichotomy and a dissonance in the minds of men, since rational self-interest is how we all normally act. Yet we've been told that sacrifice to others, or God, or the state, or the tribe, is the highest moral ideal. The social system based on personal sacrifice to others is socialism, i.e. fascism and communism, while the social system based on rational self-interest is capitalism. And I think before we continue, we should define some terms, just so that we're clear about what we're talking about when we talk about selfishness, morality, and capitalism. Selfishness is defined as acting in one's own rational self-interest. And we must use the qualifier rational to distinguish between a truly long-term selfishness and the whim-worshipping hedonism most consider selfishness to be. Morality is behavior which is consistent with your nature as a rational human individual. But remember those three things there, rational, human, and individual. They're very important to the definition of morality. Immorality would be behavior which is either deliberately irrational, i.e. by choice, or goes against our nature to pursue our happiness and survivability as individuals. As an example of the kind of morality posited by Ayn Rand, think of a person stranded alone on a desert island. To the person who believes that sacrifice to others is the highest moral goal this person could technically do no wrong, for there is nobody to sacrifice to, or to be the recipient of another sacrifice. While if rational self-interest were the standard of morality, then that isolated individual on the island could indeed act immorally. If he sat on the island and did nothing to fend for himself, he would be acting immorally. He might die because of that inaction and that choice. If, on the other hand, he actively sought out food, built a shelter, thought of ways to be rescued, like building a large fire, then he would be acting morally, since he would be acting rationally for his own survival and comfort. Capitalism. Now, capitalism is the complete separation of the state and the economy. And it must be made clear that nowhere on earth has capitalism in its proper form ever existed. It's been practiced to varying varying degrees in various countries, but it's always existed in a mixed form with socialism or statism. Perhaps the closest we've come to today is Hong Kong. And Dr. Brooke actually brings up Hong Kong in his uh, presentation. In the West, the closest we may have come to it is the early years of the United States, somewhere between the Declaration of Independence and the signing of the Constitution. That that 13-year period is probably the closest we've ever come in the West to capitalism. And to be clear, the United States, Canada, and the rest of the West are not capitalist nations in the truest sense of the word. They're practicing a mixed political and economic system of some freedom and an ever-increasing degree of regulation, taxation, and state control, i.e. socialism, and in particular, fascism. Capitalism, as defined by Rand, needs no qualifiers, although laissez-faire capitalism is often used by Rand for clarity. The word capitalism alone correctly identifies the political economic system she advocated. There's no such thing, for example, as crony capitalism, to, to use a, a hyphenated capitalist term that's been thrown out there quite frequently, especially recently, from the Enron scandals and all those crony 
scandals. Cronyism is a system of theft and deceit using the force of government to benefit you in the marketplace at the expense of other uh, at the expense of others. It's not capitalism. It's the use of government force, whether it be through getting legislation passed to benefit you over your competitor, or whether it's to get subsidies, or whether it's to get legislation which you can uh, easily get around dealing fairly with other people. It's government that's the problem in cronyism, not capitalism. Cronyism is not capitalism. And it's only the enemies of freedom and capitalism who attempt to link these two diametrically opposing terms. And another term used by the detractors of capitalism, usually libertarians, is anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho meaning, of course, without government or authority. In fact, capitalism, as we define it, cannot exist without an authority or government instituted to protect men's rights to their lives, liberty, and property, and the corollary rights entailed in those. The result of anarchy is chaos and death, not capitalism. And with these definitions in hand, let's have a listen to uh, Dr. Your own book talk about the self-evident nature of capitalism as I've defined it being the most important moral, political, and economic system. Capitalism is in decline in the Western world. And we have to ask ourselves why. And we have to really do soul-searching around this because it shouldn't be losing. (laughs) We should be winning. This is the greatest social, political, economic system in human history. People forget, 250 years ago, everybody was poor. Everybody. Except like 1%, the aristocrats, you know, who robbed us blind and were were rich. Everybody was poor. And there were a lot fewer of us. Under that regime, most of us in this room are dead. Never born kind of dead, right? This is a system that allows six billion people to live on this planet at the standard of living that we live. It allows for for a life expectancy of 80 in the West, over 80 in some parts of the West, right? That's more than double what it was 150 years ago. It allows for the technology, for the facilities, for all the innovation, for everything, our standard of living. And there's no question, if you look at reality, if you study the actual facts of history, that this is the case, that it's capitalism, it is the Industrial Revolution, the extent to which countries have allowed for economic freedom, we get these benefits. If you go back and you look at history, why did things change so quickly between 1800, everybody's poor, to 1900, where in relative terms, people are doing pretty well. Why did that happen? How did America, the United States of America, go from being a third-rate colony? Americans love this when I tell them they were a third-rate colony. The only reason they won the War of Independence was because the British didn't think they were important enough. But it's true. They were too busy fighting the Spanish and the French and other stuff, right? They went from a third-rate colony to being the mightiest economic military country in human history within 130, 40 years. And is it an accident that that is the period of greatest freedom, economic freedom in human history? And absorb millions and millions and millions of immigrants, more immigrants per capita than any society in human history. 
And did those immigrants, when they came, destroy jobs? So it worked. They tried this for 140 years. We tried this and it worked. Right? In a sense, you could look at the last 250 years as a giant experiment in which political social systems work and which don't. Right? So we tried capitalism in the United States, oh, approaching capitalism. It's, it wasn't an ideal system and there were horrible things about what they did in the 19th century, slavery being the obvious one. But generally there was more economic freedom in America during the 19th century than in any other country during any other century ever. And the success is astounding. So we tried that. And we tried communism, right? We tried the other side. We tried statism to its fullest, fascism and communism. And I put those together on purpose, right? And what was the result? Poverty, destruction, and death. And let nobody tell you anything different. Poverty, destruction, and death. That's the consequence of, of socialism. And we tried the mixtures, right? We mixed them. Well, some socialism and some elements of capitalism and we kind of mixed them up. And we tried all kinds of variations of mixture. And even when you mix them, you can see a correlation between the more freedom you give a country from an economic perspective, the more wealth is created, the better the people are. I mean, there's the economic freedom index. And you can plot how free a country is versus GDP per capita, whatever measure you want, and you can see a relationship. This is not hard stuff. This is right there in front of our eyes. So I don't buy, I don't buy that there's anybody in the world out there who is intelligent and educated, who doesn't know deep down somewhere that capitalism works, that capitalism produces the goods, that it creates a higher standard of living, that it allows for innovation and technology and all these good things. That in terms of standard of living, in terms of wealth creation, it is the best system. Krugman lies when he tells you otherwise. Paul Krugman, the US economist, won a Nobel Prize. There's no way you can't know this because it's right there in front of your face. It's in the history book, but it's in the reality of history. Maybe they don't explain it, but it's in the reality of poverty to wealth. And that has to be explained somehow. And only understanding that capitalism works explain it. So that was Dr. Yoan Brook in Toronto on May 6th. And I uh, apologize for the audio there. There was a little hissing in that. Uh, couldn't get rid of that when I recorded it. So um, now the Paul, the Paul Krugman Dr. Brook refers to in his talk is, of course, the Keynesian saltwater economist uh, who, like many, by the way, that saltwater economist, in case you're not familiar with the term, is, is a funny one. It's because uh, it, it defines economists who, who went to school uh, in Harvard and Yale and uh, uh, in California, and, and the opinions of those economists completely differ from those of the freshwater economists from, for example, the School of Chicago. So he's the Keynesian saltwater economist who, like many such economists, believe that the government has a role in economics and that it should intervene in the economy to prevent boom and bust cycles. And uh, Dr. Brook actually goes on in his talk to say that with capitalism, with no intervention, there are no boom and bust cycles. There can't be, because boom and bust cycles throughout the history of uh, economics have always been 
because of government intrusion in the economy, and that can be demonstrated. And perhaps like uh, Krugman, although I don't know the actual remarks Krugman made for Dr. Brooke to say that he's lying, such economists are either liars, these, these are the saltwater economists, they're either liars or simply so incompetent or myopic, they cannot see the glaring evidence in front of them that capitalism works. Take any measure of happiness, success, or standard of living, and plot it against the degree to which government intervenes in the economic affairs of its citizens, and any child will see a correlation. The more freedom, the greater the standard of living of the people. The more property rights are protected, the greater a country prospers. It's black and white. It's there in front of you. The data is there. And not only is there a correlation, but there's a causal relationship which can be demonstrated by a study of the facts of history and by an understanding of human nature. The evidence is out there, and any economist who argues contrarywise is, as Brooks says, lying. But why lie about something which can bring so much happiness to so many people? Because lying is a weapon of men who have disconnected themselves not only from dealing honestly with individual people, but from with reality itself itself in fact you define a lie as a as stating something contrary to the truth i.e. reality so if the metaphysics of these people is built on lies then so too you can conclude that their epistemology is built on lies and from that their ethics and from that their politics so when men deal with an acceptance of reality for what it is their epistemology has to be reason Their ethics is rational self-interest, and their politics is capitalism and freedom. When men deal with a denial of reality and deal in falsehoods and lies, their epistemology has to be irrationality and illogic. Their ethics is that of sacrifice, and their politics is of the left, socialism and statism. But it's not just the economics, uh, the economists who... We find lying to us in an attempt to evade reality and try to to get us to sacrifice to them. The liars are everywhere. There is power. It should go without saying that our politicians lie to us. I mean, that's pretty much a given. And so to try to justify their theft and uh, and products of our labor is pretty simple. I mean, we know that politicians lie. They lie about the environment when they talk about climate change, for example, or prior to that global warming or prior to that, the coming ice age. I remember reading in, uh, in school in the 70s about the coming ice age. It was all the rage then to put fear into people so that they can change laws to change our behavior to benefit who? The state. The sacrifice to the state. They lie about the necessity to reduce a carbon footprint, so-called, and about using oil. And I have a a particular, um, I don't know, bugaboo about this anti-oil thing when you have Canadian oil here in the ground and we deal with Sharia oil, as I like to call it, from countries who really do not deserve our trade. They lie about businessmen being greedy when all the time it's they who are coveting other people's wealth. Who's passing the laws? Who's passing the, t- the laws to tax and to regulate? It's the politicians. And they call the people greedy for denying them their so-called right to tax us. It's an inversion of morality. It's an inversion of reality. 
Politicians, though, are just the end of a long chain of liars. And the chain starts, in my opinion, in our schools, when teachers tell the little kids that they must share. What a completely immoral concept it is to share your property with complete strangers for the sake of sharing. I can see sharing with people you love or your friends, even the neighbors you like when you choose to do so. But to share because you're told to share? Because the act of sharing is an act considered to be the epitome of morality? Is itself immoral. In fact, although almost everybody considers sharing to be noble, nobody believes it. To prove it to yourself, walk up to a stranger on the street and ask him to share his cell phone, or his shoes, or his car, and if he resists, take it and see what happens. Actually, you don't need to prove it. You know what will happen in that kind of a scenario. Nobody really believes in sharing for the sake of sharing. Nobody believes uh, without it's sharing without some reasonable aspect of a return. In other words, trade. So why do our teachers, and our parents for that matter, try to instill in us at an early age the notion that sharing is good? Because it prepares us to be the slaves demanded of a culture built on sacrifice. It's as simple as that. It's preparation to be a slave. They're starting to fit the chains to your ankles and your wrists. Because from that time you get your first job, you are going to be a slave to the rest of society, to the tribe, to the church, to the country, to the government. Now, there's some hope for those who send their children to Montessori schools, and I'm personal experience with this, in that that's a system where a child is given a mat to sit on the floor and do their work, whether it's math or whatever they're doing there. And it's, it's considered their space, and they learn immediately that no other child will bother them in that space. And likewise, they learn not to bother the other children when they are on their mats. It's a very civilized system of instruction, and I've seen it in action. Usually the kids would just lay out the mat, and it's about maybe uh, one meter by two meters long. And um, they'd sit on there with their blocks or their their coloring or their, their work of whatever sort it is. And, and the other kids will not come along and say, I'd like those blocks, or share that with me. That's just not done in a civilized environment. It's not done in when you're an adult, and it shouldn't be done when you're a child. Lying is the tool of the left. And of course, by the left, I mean all statists, including conservatives, theocrats, Sharia pushers, liberals, progressives, the so-called 99 percenters, socialists, etc. The list is almost endless. And as long as these people can gain control of us through lying, they'll refrain from their usual tool of control. And that, my dear friends, as history has demonstrated, is the firing squad. So as long as we get let them get away with their lies and to get their way, we avoid getting shot at. Because that's exactly what these kinds of people do. They demand that we sacrifice to them. And if we don't, they take it by force. And before we break at the bottom of the hour, I'm just going to read a little bit from The Virtue of Selfishness as reprinted in um, the Ayn Rand Lexicon, edited by Harry Binswanger, on selfishness itself uh, from Ayn Rand. She, She quotes, The meaning ascribed in popular usage to the word selfishness is not merely wrong. It represents a devastating intellectual package deal which is responsible more than any other single factor for the arrested moral development of mankind. 
In popular usage, the word selfishness is a synonym of evil. The image it conjures is that of a murderous brute who tramples over piles of corpses to achieve his own ends, who cares for no living being and pursues nothing but the gratification of the mindless whims of any immediate moment. Yet the exact meaning and dictionary definition of the word selfishness is concern with one's own interests. This concept does not include a moral evaluation. It does not tell us whether concern with one's own interest is good or evil, nor does it tell us what constitutes man's actual interest. It's a task of ethics to answer those questions. And Rand, in my opinion, is perhaps the first modern philosopher to correctly identify and the, the dictionary definition of that term and to use it to create a system of ethics, and from that, a system of politics, capitalism. She connected the two. If selfishness is the good, then capitalism has to be the politics to help us achieve our own rational self-interests. Uh, we're coming up to the bottom of the hour, and we're going to listen to, first of all, a little clip from a movie that I love called The Invention of Lying, a little apropos considering our discussion, followed by at the... Um, after the promos, another bit from your own Brooke uh, in his discussion in um, the University of Toronto, which I recorded on May 6th. And it's about business and making money and again, selfishness. So let's go to break. Hi, I'm here for the rent. Yeah, I was going to come and talk to you today. I got fired yesterday. I know. That's why I'm here for the rent. Yeah, I haven't got it. How much do you have? I've got about $300 left in my bank account. The rent's 800 I know. I haven't got that. Then you're evicted. you got one day to get your stuff out of here. Well, how am I going to do that? you got $300. Rent a truck. What can I do for you today, sir? Just been evicted from my apartment. So I have to withdraw whatever I've got in my account to move my things out. I think I have to close my account. Probably going to be homeless. Mark Bellison. Unfortunately, sir, the system is down right now, so I'm not going to be able to perform an account closure until it's back up. But I can help you with a withdrawal. How much would you like to withdraw today? All of it. Whatever's left. The system is down, sir. Can you tell me how much is in your account? Sir? Sir? $800. Pardon me? I have $800 in my account. The system just came back up. System seems to be back up, guys. Thank you. Just a second while I access your account. You said you were withdrawing 800, correct? Wait a second. It says here that you only have $300 in your account, but you said you wanted to withdraw 800? Yeah. I, I apologize, sir. It seems our system has made a mistake. Let's get you your $800. Did you want large bills or small? Bills. It's large. Right, here you go. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, $800. Is there anything else I can do for you today, sir? Ah. Sorry for the inconvenience. Most Come on. <gasps> today, I stumbled upon something that no man has ever stumbled on before. What I've done, they'll write about in history books for generations to come. And yet, Moments ago, it was unfathomable, not only to myself, but to mankind as a whole. It's hard to describe it. And it was as easy as... How do I explain this? 
I said something that wasn't. Huh? It... I said something that wasn't. I... What's the word for it? Um, there isn't a word for it. Of course there isn't. I invented it. Um... We had a very powerful banker in the United States in the early part of the 20th century called J.P. Morgan. And he ran his bank with an iron fist. And he was incredible. Most of the industries in the U.S. in the early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th, were funded by J.P. Morgan. He was a brilliant, brilliant financier. And in 1907, there was a financial crisis for a variety of reasons, primarily related to government policies. But a financial crisis, and J.P. Morgan single-handedly saved the whole system. He got all the bankers in a room and locked the door and said, we're going to sit here until we solve this problem. And they did. And why did he do it? Because it was good for J.P. Morgan. And everybody looked at that. In the beginning, he was a hero. Wow, J.P. Morgan saved the world. And then they started to think, but wait a minute. He's, he's this private guy, and he's doing it for his own interest. That can't be right. How can we trust this guy? He's selfish. He's in it for his own interests. That's wrong. Banking system, that's a big thing. We need, we need to give it to somebody responsible. So let's get rid of private banks, and let's start a public bank public, owned by the government, right? Let's call it the Federal Reserve and put Alan Greenspan in charge. And we trust Alan Greenspan, why? Because he's doing it for the public interest. He doesn't get bonuses. He doesn't get options. He has no selfish motivation to run the bank. And him we trust. I don't know if you remember the days where we trusted Alan Greenspan. <laughs> Some of you might. But in those days he was God, right? He could not do wrong, why? He was a smart central planner who could do no wrong and doing it for the good of humanity, not for his own good. So we get rid of J.P. Morgan and we get us Ben Bernanke instead. And why do we trust Ben Bernanke and not J.P. Morgan? Because the one is selfish and the one, other one is selfless. selfless. And you could track industry by industry, regulation by regulation. You know, uh, I like to use elevators as an example. You know, you go, I don't know here in Canada if you have this, but in America you go into an elevator and on the wall there's this little diploma that says that a government bureaucrat has inspected the elevator and it won't fall. Right? Everywhere. Because we know, we know that if we leave it to the marketplace, all the elevators will fall. <laughs> and we need a public servant, somebody who cares about humanity, to inspect the elevators to make sure they don't fall because we know that left alone businessmen will kill their customers because that's how you make money. Yes, that is how you make money. Not quite that way. Uh, interesting when he talks about how we trust a government bureaucrat who has no interest whatsoever in making sure that the elevators don't fall. We trust them. I mean, we don't trust the company who makes it and, and wants to make a profit from their efforts and who, if there was an accident with one of their elevators, would probably never... Uh, recover financially from such uh, a devastating action. And he went on, actually, Dr. Yaron Brook, to uh, describe uh, other businesses, you know, as an example, you know, McDonald's would go out there and deliberately poison people, though some might say that that's what they're doing with some of their uh, menu items. But, you know, people have choice and they go there and they enjoy their uh, what they pay for. Here's a, a, a little quote from 
uh, Ayn Rand again talking about um, a robber and his sense of ethics. And for robber, I'm going to substitute, or you can substitute it in your mind, the notion of government, because that's exactly what the government is when they practice the morality of sacrifice. She says, The evil of a robber does not lie in the fact that he pursues his own interests, but in what he regards as to be as his own interests. Not in the fact that he pursues his values, but in, but in what he chooses to value. Not in the fact that he wants to live, but in the fact that he wants to live on a subhuman level. If it is true that what I mean by selfishness is not what is meant conventionally, then this is the one uh, the, then the, this is one of the worst indictments of altruism, Ayn Rand says. It means that altruism permits no concept of a self-respecting, self-supporting man, a man who supports his life by his own effort and neither sacrifices himself nor others. It means that altruism permits no view of men except as sacrificial animals and profiteers on sacrifice as victims and parasites, that it permits no concept of a benevolent coexistence among men that it permits no concept of justice. And that's exactly what uh, Yaron Brook is, is talking about. You either have sacrifice as your moral standard or you have rational self-interest. For the people who have sacrifice as their moral self-interest, there can be no self-interested people. Self-interested people, by them, by their definition, are evil. And of course, people who hold that sacrifice as the moral high ground are basically telling every one of you out there that you are evil, patently born evil, and that you must learn to change what you know to be your, in your rational self-interest and work for others, and by others meaning the state. Businessmen today are considered by virtue of their selfish nature to be evil, and while obviously necessary to produce and sell and distribute goods, they must be controlled. This is where we're getting into the parasitic nature of the sacrificial state. This is the thinking of the left. In fact, it's the thinking of a particular brand of the left called fascism. Now, fascism allows for private ownership but state control. And, and people misconstrue fascism all the time with Hitlerism and Nazism. That's not the case. I mean, Hitler uh, and the Nazis practiced fascism. Uh, in Germany in the 30s, you were allowed to own things, but the state controlled it completely. That's fascism. That's the same as in Italy at the time, in the 1930s. And that's what we have here today. You have you have private property, but you don't have control over it. It's the system where, where we have today in the West. All of the West is fascist. It's just a matter of degree as to how much state control is exerted, but the nature, the identity of the system remains the same, fascism. Ayn Rand's Code of Ethics rejects the notion that anyone who works in his own self-interest is evil. In fact, objectivist ethics holds rational self-interest as a primary condition for good. This is from Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness. By the way, there's a, I'll put these um, titles of these books um, on our website uh, a little later so that you can have a, a look at all of Ayn Rand's books dealing with selfishness. This one is from... The Virtue of Selfishness, again, printed in uh, Ayn Rand Lexicon by Harry Bingswagger. Basically, I, I keep this on my desk. Very handy. She says, quote, The standard of value of objectivist ethics, the standard by which one judges what is good or evil, is man's life, or that which is required for man's survival qua man. 
Since reason is man's basic means of survival, that which is proper to life of a rational being is the good, and that which negates, opposes, or destroys it is the evil. Since everything man needs has to be discovered by his own mind and produced by his own effort, the two essentials of the method of survival proper to a rational being are thinking and productive work. Unquote. No wonder the left disagrees with objectivist ethics. They oppose both methods of individual survival, thinking and productive work. To the left, there's only one method of survival, to live off of the generosity of the state in a system of sacrifice. The state will provide. No need for thought, no need for work. Sounds a lot like North Korea. I understand, or I underline the following passage from Rand's The Virtue of Selfishness 25 years ago in my copy. Quote, the objectivist ethics holds that human good does not require human sacrifices and cannot be achieved by the sacrifice of anyone to anyone. It holds that the rational interests of men do not clash and that there is no conflict of interest among men who do not desire the unearned, who do not make sacrifices nor accept them, who deal with one another as traders, giving value for value. The principle of trade is the only rational ethical principle for all human relationships, personal and social, private and public, spiritual and material. It's the principle of justice, unquote. Now, when you read those words, and I read those words uh, back in 1985, I think, and they changed my way of thinking for sure. They solidified what I was thinking of uh, when I first received my first paycheck, <laughs> And I saw the taxes out of there. I was naive. I was in my 20s or whatever it was. I just out of university, got a paycheck. And I'm going, what's this tax here? Public school tax. Now, I, my first paycheck was in Newfoundland. And at the time, your public school taxes were taken out of uh, your paycheck. Not as they are here in Ontario and your property taxes. And so I questioned that going, I'm finished school. Why am I paying for somebody else's school? And there's people out there who say, well, you got your public education from other people, and now it's time for you to pay for theirs. But then it made me start to think about the patent injustice of such a system, of relying on taxation forced from you to pay for somebody else's education, whether I was a recipient of it or not is irrelevant. I'll pay it back if you want, as long as you never tax me again. That's not going to happen. So why then, understanding this from Rand, why then would businessmen or anyone who trade freely with others be thought of as evil? It's because those who do it believe in sacrifice. That is, those who think of that. They, they believe in sacrifice. And people who trade in a win-win transaction, as all free trades are, are not making a sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? You go to the store, you buy something, you can give them your money, they give you a product. Where's the sacrifice there? There's something wrong in the minds of these people in the minds of the uh, the left, such people are acting immorally because there's there's no blood there, there's no sacrifice. Yesterday, as an example, it was reported that an extremely wealthy Canadian real estate developer, described as a man of high ethics, Murray Frum, had died. Now, in the article in the National Post I read, it was written by his son, David Frum, a noted conservative and former speechwriter for George W. Bush, I looked to find how his father had amassed his fortune, 
In another article by Sarah Petz, in the same paper, I had learned that he'd come from poverty to dentistry, to being so wealthy that he, he could afford millions upon millions of dollars worth of primitive art. And that's the way she described it as primitive art. But that's all I could learn from Petz or David Frum. His decades in the real estate development business were apparently a, a mere footnote to the life of this eth- ethical man. What Petz and Frum chose to highlight in the paper was Murray Frum's philanthropy, his sacrifice to the arts community, recipient of a, a fortune in religious sculptures. What communities did he help develop? What buildings did he help build? As Ayn Rand would say, blank out. No answer. Because, to the people who believe in sacrifice, that's not important. It's not important that for 40, 50, 60 years he worked to help build communities, build buildings, make place, uh, employ people, uh, generate through trade, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. That's not important. What's important is how he gave it away, what he spent it on, how he dished it out, how he sacrificed himself. That's his epitaph. The other things are unimportant in a nation built on sacrifice. The business a man conducts is apparently secondary to how he gives his wealth away. Now, naturally, a man can give his money away as he chooses. That perhaps Murray Frum would like to be remembered as a philanthropist rather than a a real estate developer. But I think it's symbolic of our sacrificial society that a man of such obvious influence and business acumen be remembered not for all the things he helped create, but for the primitive art he gave away in my sense of ethics, this is just sad. <clears throat> I, have a, I have a question about the uh, moral transformation, uh, or moral revolution, rather. About, uh, about, about, about the feasibility of it, in light of the fact that human beings have always organized themselves into groups, whether it's tribes, whether it's nations, whatever. It seems to be encoded in our DNA, our morality of service to others, perhaps even flows from that fact. The fact that we... Um, we we ha- we feel the sense of belongingness uh, with others. It's a very it's very emotional when we see somebody uh, is it, w- a, a member of our group uh, suffering. Uh, you know we we want we, there's this desire to help them right. There's this desire to serve, and and so um, and so it seems to me that uh, uh, this this moral revolution. Um, I, I just don't see how it's possible in light of, in light of this, this very, very human... We, because, and it, it seems to be rooted in, in biology. And that's the first, the first. And the second, the second thing is... The, uh, just one, uh, one last question. Where you... Um, in, the, in the beginning, you kind of made this... You, you, you presented this dichotomy of, 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 of goodness is service to others and selfishness is evil. And, 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 we, and, and, and the revolution would reverse that. But I, I, it seems to me that's kind of a caricature. Why, 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 not, why not combine the best elements of, of both? Um, okay, I get it. I get it. So you, you, want, you, you want both. And, you know, that's like, that's like just taking a little bit of poison, in my view. But um, combining good food with poisonous food. Look, yeah, we want to be in groups. Groups are incredibly beneficial to us. And I talked about that. I said, we're not isolationists. We don't believe in living in the forest alone. We want to be in a group where there's voluntary exchange, where there are win-win relationships, where the essential characteristic of human relationship is trade. I give you, I give back. And I think that's true in spiritual terms as well as material terms. The fundamental is that exchange, that trade. And yes, we're an animal, 
biologically, that benefits from that enormously. It's, 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 it, trade is an incredible value to us. And societies that trade grow and succeed. Societies that don't, where trade is destroyed, are destroyed. So that, that group, as a voluntary group in which we trade, is a huge value to all of us. And there's nothing I said about the morality of self-interest contradicts that. It's in my self-interest to belong to a group in which we voluntarily are exchanging products and exchanging spiritual values, right? The question is, and this is where they, the morality that you call a character, but it's not. This is the way morality is taught. That the morality that says that no, you get moral points only when you sacrifice, when you lose when somebody else has gained. If you gain and everybody else gains with you, that doesn't count. That's a trade. That doesn't count morally. I mean, th here's an example I like to use. Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates builds Microsoft. He makes $100 billion for himself while building Microsoft. He helps every human being on the whole planet. There's not a human being on the planet that is not being touched positively by Microsoft. Lives are better off all over the world because Bill Gates made $100 billion. Because he made $100 billion by trading with billions of people out there and making their lives better off because he traded with them. Does he get one iota of moral credit? Moral, not business. Moral credit for that? No. Not in the culture we live in. When does he get moral credit? When he leaves Microsoft, so he's not being self-interested anymore, and he gives it away. So now he's a good guy, and he gets some moral credit, but not quite all the moral credit, because we're a little suspicious of him. Because I have the sneaky feeling that he's enjoying this. <laughs> So he's only going to get some moral credit because he might actually be pursuing something he actually values. What would more Bill Gates have to do to get to become a saint, to become a really good guy? He'd have to give it all away, move into a tent, and bleed a little bit. <laughs> now, none of us would want to be Bill Gates at that point because none of us want to do that kind of sacrifice. But that's what morality demands. That's what the morality of altruism is about. It's not about being benevolent. It's not about being nice to people. It's about serving others. It's about your life being subservient to the life of other people. And it's wrong, it's evil, it's bad. Altruism, there's nothing good about it. I don't want to mix a little bit of altruism with my self-interest. Because you know what? If I'm self-interested, how do you think I treat people? As human beings, they produce, they're good for me, they make my life better. If they're producing an iPhone, I get to trade with them and make my life better. And if somebody's suffering, and I know they're suffering not because of their own, not for their own fault, because their house burned down or something bad happened to them, I would help them. I'm benevolent, I love human beings. I'm actually, I think more people in the globe is better, right? Six billion right now, let's make it ten. Because with 10 billion, there'll be more people producing more stuff, more people for me to trade with. I'll become, automatically, I become richer. Right? So I love people. But there's not an ounce of sacrifice. There's not an ounce of selflessness in my love of other people. I love other people because it's good for me. I love other people because my life is better off for them. I want more people to be born because I love Beethoven and I love Michelangelo. I, I love artists, right? I love art. You go, you go to my house and it's plastered with paintings all over the world. It's like the old academies. You can't find any space between the paintings or something. I have sculptures everywhere. I love this stuff. And you know what? If there are more people born, there's more probability of Michelangelo born. I love that. And if somebody's, somebody's suffering, again, for no fault of their own, 
Sure, I'd help them. But you know what? I'm going to help my kids first. Why am I going to help my kids first? Because I love them more. They're more valuable to me. And I'm going to help my neighbor first before I send my money to Africa. Because my neighbor is more likely to impact my life positively than the people in Africa are going to impact my life. So I don't care that much about people in Africa. That's a fact. Call heartless, whatever you want. But I don't. Because their impact on my life is marginal. The impact on my neighbor is great. The standard for my caring for other people is whom? Me. I don't need any altruism for that. And indeed, that creates, in my view, the most benevolent society in history. Think about what happens. If, if you, if, if, in my view, altruism creates malevolence. It creates hatred, it creates envy, it creates resentment. Because if we all believe that we all owe a moral duty to help others, that's our moral obligation, that's the essence of morality, and I'm poor, nobody's helping me. Those rich guys over there, they're screwing me. Their moral obligation is to help me and they're not living up to it. What does that lead me to do? I hate them, I resent them, because they're not doing what they're supposed to do, which is help me. But if I flip that around and say, no, your moral obligation is to take care of yourself. Their moral obligation is to take care of themselves. And you know what? In a free market, when people take care of themselves, everybody's better off. So when I see a rich guy, I go, cool. That means I'm better off because of him. Bill Gates made $500 billion. That is incredible because everybody else is better off. Nah, that's a free market. Put aside the cronyism. In a true free market, right? Bill Gates making billions means I'm better off. That's benevolence. I respect other people, and I know that my life is my responsibility, not theirs. So I don't envy them, I don't resent them, I don't hate them for their success. All I want is for me to be successful, so I work hard to be successful. That's the kind of society I want to live in. And that's the kind of society I want to live in, too. That was Euron Brook, the uh, president of the uh, Ayn Rand Institute, speaking in Toronto on May 6th. So how does one get to live in a benevolent society where people treat each other as human beings rather than as sacrificial beings. Just listen to the question that, that the person at the uh, event asked, you know, is why can't we have a little bit of both, a little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of selfishness? What Yaron didn't answer with was because to have that, to have that little bit of sacrifice, you must initiate force. And that's the kind of society we live in today, a society where we are forced to be benevolent, which of course means that we're not benevolent at all because it's, we're forced to do that. Half our income is taken from us by force and given to others, most of whom are not deserving of it. So how do we live in that kind of a society? How do we develop a benevolent society where people trade freely with each other? The answer is stories, culture, you know, it's through 4,000 years of storytelling from the binding of Isaac to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to the stories of today, which see sacrifice as the noblest deed that we have come to adopt this immoral and destructive philosophy of sacrifice. In the binding of Isaac, we have Abraham ready to murder his son as a burnt offering to his God. From that and other equally as disturbing stories, we created the religions of Judaism, and from that we have Christianity and Islam. Three religions steeped in stories of sacrifice dominating half of the planet. 
It's this kind of pervasive indoctrination that Ayn Rand's philosophy rebels against. It's a Herculean task, no doubt. And as with the ethics of sacrifice, so too the ethics of rational self-interest must be told with stories. Rand provided us with her own fiction and stories like We the Living, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. But there are other instances of stories of rational self-interest. They're now coming out of Hollywood and, and, and in independent films and books. And some of these Bob and I have covered on the show before. We often talk of comic book heroes, TV shows and movies, which we see to reflect to one degree or another the kind of philosophy Rand promoted. Stories where man is seen as a heroic being. Stories of competent men, virtuous men, men who readily identify evil and know how to deal with it and who are not afraid to identify the good in men and deal with it appropriately as well. If you're listening to Yaron there, he was talking about how he loves people. The more people, the better, because the more chance that they will create things to make his life beneficial. To be selfish in the, in the sense that Ayn Rand talks about is not to hate men. It's to love men. It's to love mankind. It's to love all that they do when it benefits others, including yourself. There's where the selfishness comes into it. Now, viewed from the perspective of objectivist ethics, many of these stories, philosophically, are still in their infancy and flawed. On the one hand, they have a heroic, competent man, but often there are elements of sacrifice which are hard to ignore. I've had many of objectivist friends, and we, we delight sometimes in reviewing movies and books, trying to find the good and bad in them, still waiting for that perfect, rational, self-interested hero to add to the canon of rational, egoistic stories. Now, to name a few, just to give you an idea, we've mentioned before on this show, there, there are many episodes, for example, Star Trek. That's why we play a lot of Star Trek on this show, is because the writers for that series were phenomenal in their identifying self-interest. There's uh, the television show Short-Lived Firefly. There's James Bond. Now, there's the competent man portrayed for sure. The graphic stories of uh, Bosch Faustin, who we've had on this show. Uh, Steve Ditko, the creator of Spider-Man. Rand's novels, of course, and, and many singular episodes of the older detective novels, uh, novels and westerns and TV shows of that ilk. Science fiction seems to have been more than its fair share of stories dealing with people who know how to act without sacrificing themselves needlessly to strangers. Stories of the frontiers where governments have yet to encroach on human freedom to the extent they have today. Today we live in a system of mixed economics. Capitalism mixed with socialism. We also live in a system of mixed morality. Rational self-interest with sacrifice. Ayn Rand and Yaron Brook and countless others have taken on the task of trying to separate the poison from the good, to separate the socialism from the capitalism and the sacrifice from the rational self-interest. And only by education, by telling the stories of competent, rationally self-interested people can this be achieved, at least in my opinion. And so, until next time, you know what to do to be rationally self-interested. Think right, do right, act right, and be right back here. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Tonight we're going to take a look at work. Well, great, I'm all for that. You mean work? No looking at it. <laughs> I thought so. Did you ever have to work real hard at anything? 
Well, once it took two dinners and a bottle of wine. I mean pursuing something utilizing your full capacity that could result in an achievement providing great personal satisfaction. Ever do that? Yeah, as I said, once it took two dinners and a bottle of wine. You know what it means to work. I certainly do. I often I tell girls I need understanding. Well, what's that got to do with it? Nothing, but it works. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever had a real job? Sure, I was once worked part-time, but I got fired. Why? It was a full-time job. Uh, 